Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny SD. Hey everyone, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 118 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Brian Carraway from Flying Squirrel Outfitters, the hammock maker. Welcome. Yep, thank you, Johnny. Yeah, so actually right before this, we were down by my pool playing with his new hammocks that he's uh, designing and putting up on Kickstarter. Yep, yep. And, and they were pretty cool. Yeah, you liked them? Yeah. Good, good. I thought it was pretty fun. How, how, okay, so where are you actually from originally and what brings you to Chiang Mai? Uh, well, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, and I was about like 25, 26. Moved out to Seattle. was there, out there for like six years. And now I've been in Chiang Mai for about two and a half. Nice. And what made you come to Chiang Mai in the first place? Just kind of a lifestyle change, really. Um, kind of the kind of same thing that's echoed with a lot of people who kind of to kind of move out here. Um, just working up, working in the uh, tech environment in Seattle. Um, got a little itch to travel. Came out to Thailand for a month. Went back, quit my job within a couple of weeks, and just sold off all my stuff. And nice. I like it. Here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in and, and tech, like, were you programming or what were you doing? No, I was doing uh, online marketing, so a lot with like um, heavy email campaigns, um, on-site advertising. Worked for a company called Redfin. Oh, I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The real estate company, right? Yep, yep. Nice. Not quite a small startup anymore, but it was another kind of push out. It was getting a little more uh, of a corporate environment, so it's just trying, time to switch it up. Okay. So, what got you into hammocks? Um, well, I kind of fell into this situation. Uh, I've always loved hammocks, um, especially of the parachute variety, the travel travel kind. Um, I was looking for a hammock actually about a year and a half ago, like a tie, like a what I thought was like a tie style hammock, which doesn't actually seem to exist. Uh, so I started doing some googling and found uh, found out about a story of a of a hill tribe that was making Mayan style woven hammocks, um, and it kind of built like this little micro economy uh, for this area. Um, and it had grown and done really, really well over the last like 15 years. It's just a really inspiring story. So um, I wanted to learn more about it and get a hammock. So I went out there. It's about four hours south of Chiang Mai. Um, went and met up with the operator. And we got to talking. And he was saying they kind of hit uh, a ceiling more or less. There was a lot of demand in the area to get involved with the high-paying hammock project. Um, and around this time, I was also kind of looking for, I guess, my next steps. Um, kind of have that entrepreneurial spirit, of course. So... Um, I said, well, okay, there's clearly like a lot of, uh, skilled seamstresses in the area. These parachute variety of travel hammocks are really popular. So why don't we try to design something like that? Fast forward a year, uh, we've got some solid prototypes going. We employ four, four seamstresses and it's taken off. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I like that. Uh, I've, I have been to those hill trap places and I love the craftsmanship for those hammocks, but they're not good for travel. They're like these heavy, like what are they made out of? Um, the, the Malabri make, um, like a lot of hammocks out of two different, two different kinds of, uh, material. One's like a, an acrylic, like an acrylic yarn, you know, you get that, it's like a woven pattern. So you kind of get that waffle print, you know, laying on it too long. And the other, and the other kind they use is just like a, like a cotton yarn. So keeping it outdoors, which is basically all you would do with these, it would be like a, like a piece of furniture, a fixture in your garden. Um, it just, it just gets eaten up by the sun and you know, the color fades, uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, cotton, acrylic for the most part. Okay. Yeah, I, I definitely like having those. 
especially if you have like a covered backyard or something and you can just leave it out and if it, if it doesn't rain ever but the ones that we have here in front of us there's there's two models the, the what do you call it, the micro and the uh, we've got yeah two kinds uh, the larger ones a, a double size so easily can fit two people hold uh, 200 kilos so a little over 400 pounds and the other one's an ultralight version mainly for one person okay yeah so uh, I got to sit in both of them. We set them up between my shower for my pool <laughs> and uh, a palm tree, I guess. It was, yeah. yeah. So it, it, was actually, it was actually a perfect setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked surprisingly. It was a good spot next to the pool too. Yeah. So if you guys want to see the photo of it and, and kind of see us laying around, uh, just go to episode 118, uh, the show notes of travellikeabosspodcast.com and you can see kind of those those photos um personally i'm a big fan of the ultralight just because i'm like a very minimalistic traveler uh but i can see that the, the bigger one the double one would be better in all aspects in, in case you know it's more comfortable you can cocoon yourself in it so if you want to take a nap um if it gets windy or it gets cold or you want to cover yourself in the sun or if you want two people in there so i can definitely see the benefits of the bigger one and it's actually not even that much bigger like do, do you know what these weigh uh, it's about a pound and a half. Okay. And about for like the, 25, 25 what about for the ounces? ultralight one? Uh, the ultralight's 11 ounces. So it is designed for the minim- minimalist tra- okay. traveler like yourself. So it's um, it's comfortable to sleep in, but the double is going to be a lot more comfortable. Um, I mean, the double honestly is like better with just one person, but can sleep too, but obviously better just for one. Um, and so I like the material too, because it's the, the super lightweight. Mm-hmm. It seems like it'd be water resistant. Um, uh, it's not water resistant, um, but if you're hanging in your hammock in the rain anyway, you're going to get wet. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it, it dries really fast though too. So if you hung, hung it up outside, especially in the weather out here, uh, it'll dry in 10, 15 okay. minutes. So it's not going to like mess up the hammock or right? no, not at okay. all. Uh-uh. So the other thing that, that you have that kind of differentiate yourself from, from other hammocks is it's adjustable. Yes. How did you get the idea of that? Well, <laughs> So in the double, I like the larger. I, I prefer the larger hammock. It's just more comfortable to lay out in. But sometimes when you are laying in it, you just get, there is so much extra material. It does kind of flap over in your face. You can get cocooned. If, if you want to do that, that's fine. But sometimes when you're hanging out with friends or you want to read a book, it's a little annoying. So I wanted to create some kind of like fabric tensioner, some way to adjust that. So if I wanted to lay in it and cocoon myself, I had that option, but also to adjust the tension a bit to where I could sit in it in different ways. If I wanted uh, to read or work on my computer and just use my hammock more often, it, it required some way to figure out how to like reduce extra annoying material. So, so the pouch, um, yeah, it, it opens on both sides. Kind of hard to explain without having the visual. Um, but we do have some videos on our website at flyingsquirreloutfitters.com where you can see uh, that the pouch isn't attached to the hammock at all. So you literally can slide it along the entire body of the hammock, adjusting tension at any point of the hammock. So you can adjust it for larger guys or smaller people. It doesn't matter. Um, you can adjust it to your size and, and weight. And it yeah, reduces that extra flap, increases visibility. So you can make it uh, hammocking more social and a communal activity. So it, you have more visibility. Um, or you can like create like a little hanging chair pod out of it too by pulling it in really tight. So it's it's got options. Yeah. So before you came, I watched the the Kickstarter video, uh, which you can see on his page. I'll have a link to it. Uh, but it it looks cool, you know. And you're like, you know, at first I just from the video, I was thinking, man, this must be like some kind of crazy new technology. But then when we set it up, I was like, you know, it's actually very a simple modification to just the pouch. Yep. 
And so a couple things I liked about it is one, you don't have to throw the cow, the pouch on the ground uh, and end up losing it because it's it's always attached to the hammock. And then second, that you were able to you know to make a, a very small change and then give more functionality to the hammock. So it's one of those things where I was you know it made me wonder I'm like why aren't all hammocks like this? Uh, well, I definitely uh, have an opinion on that, especially a lot of the commercially sold ones in the States. They probably come from a lot of the same factories in, in China and Indonesia. Take it to the moon, um, I believe, has their own factory in, in Bali. Uh, and they're a, they're a huge manufacturer. Um, and they're a great company. I actually really respect what they do. But yeah, that's why you find a lot of the, the same hammocks with the pouch on the side. Um, you have to take it down and like lay your hammock on the ground to stuff it all in there, getting it dirty. Whereas this design, you can just keep it hanging up on one side and just stuff it right back in the hanging pouch. So it, it makes it really, really simple um, and easy to use. So I actually purposely tried that too. Uh, I was like, okay, let me see if I can actually get this back in the pouch because it like kind of like folding up a sleeping bag. Yeah, it's, sometimes yeah. it's an, impossible to get the bag <laughs> back into that pouch that comes in. It always drives me crazy. Yeah, but good news is I was able to stuff it back in like very easily. It, it, was, it was no big deal at all. And the other thing I like about what you're doing is that you're actually innovating. So even though it wasn't like this huge change that you know was like this magical um, you know hack or anything, it's it's cool that you're actually thinking about how to make a hammock better. And I wish that everybody did that with, with all products. Yeah, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel here. And a hammock is kind of one of those things where it's just kind of perfect as is. But I wanted to use it for for more often, really. So I, I needed, I wanted to use it while I read or worked on my laptop. I, I mean, you can do that in other traditional hammocks. It's just not as comfortable. Literally, I'll lay in that in a traditional style hammock and I'll be asleep in 10 minutes. Like it does a great job at inducing sleep and, and it's great for that. So, but I wanted something, especially now with um, how hammock trends are going in the United States, especially like with millennials and people getting out of college, festival goers, people want a hammock with their friends. They want to make it more of a, a communal activity like I was saying, like stacking them up in trees, just having fun with them. It's like, like hammocking is a verb. It's something to do now. It's not just uh, a sleep device. So I wanted something that could optimize those kinds of activities. So I've never actually heard of the verb hammocking till right now, but <laughs> makes sense, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, a, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I gave it, I gave it a shot with the uh, the the adjustable sitting positions. Uh, so in the ultralight version, the small version, uh, it wasn't a huge difference, but it was still kind of cool to have have the design of it and and it was easier to roll back up um you know so the pouch doesn't get separated but i can say that in the bigger uh full-size version I, I definitely felt the difference where if i wanted to kind of sit up a little bit more and read uh it gave me a little bit more more back support than just laying completely flat yeah yeah i think i think certainly the ultra is designed for a certain kind of purpose um and i but i do think the double is with more material it's a more comfortable kind of overnight um, item to take with you. The ultralight's just good to keep on you at all times. It's it's great more for the purposes of like, yeah, having a chair, but you can sprawl out in it as well. Um, but yeah, uh, having that pouch functionality in both, and I, and I think given with like different sizes of people, you can kind of use it differently and use that pouch. It's just fully adjustable across the whole thing. So it really... Um, there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, and I try to make that very clear when I like kind of demonstrate it to people. It's just like you adjust it to how you want to use it in that moment. And if you don't want to use it, the pouch, uh, just, just put it back on the other end and just lay out in a normal hammock. We didn't want to take anything away from the traditional hammock because that's still perfect 
in its own essence, but also, yeah, just adding some more utility to it, I just think makes it better. I like it. So you found a product that, that you like doing that's locally made and you figure out, you know, ways to make it better. So now you're figuring out the kind of the marketing side of it. So what made you decide to, to launch on Kickstarter? Well, it was a lot of the feedback I was getting here locally. I was I was just selling them kind of one off here and there, um, local market. I, I've, I've got them in uh, CMRCA, the local rock climbing gym, uh, Chiang Mai Rock Climbing Adventures. We sell them there as well, uh, working with distribution through them. Um, so listening to our customers um, and getting just amazing feedback just really told me that we had something. We had something unique. Um, a lot of the people who do come through here obviously are travelers. It's a very appealing product for them. And they said they'd never seen anything like this. They love that extra pouch functionality without taking anything away from what they're used to. And on a lot of them, it's crazy. A lot of people will own three or four of these style of hammocks. I didn't know that. So um, just- what, do they, what do they do with more than one? Um, to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, I think they, it's kind of just one of those things to collect, um, having, you know, a variety of colors, I guess. I, I'm, I'm really not sure, but there, there are a lot of other hammocks out there that have different elements to them. Um, nothing like what, what we have going on here in terms of like adjustability. Um, but certainly like integrated mosquito nets or integrated strap systems. Um, and so different things. So like there's, and with the hammock trend, like I was saying, is really kind of taken off in the States right now. There, there, there are more new innovations coming to the market. Um, a lot of the bigger brands like Eno or Grand Trunk Hammocks, they've got just a slew of different, uh, different hammocks, but, but none that could adjust, uh, adjust the body and the tension quite like this. So yeah, we, we just thought we, we were onto something. So before I just kind of blindly threw it out there to the world, I, I figured I wanted to do like a proper product launch. Um, and we, and we've done really well. We've sold over 600 here, um, in Thailand, um, and a little bit back in the States, just kind of within my immediate network. Um, but to, I wanted to, with my marketing background, I knew like a proper product launch, especially Kickstarter was good for two reasons. One, just to kind of yeah, introduce it to the world and get a little PR buzz going with it too. But it also allows us some lead time. So we're, we're not a factory and to scale up is a little more difficult um, because in Thailand, they call it losing face. So if we were to bring somebody on and give them work for three months, they're excited about their high paying job. Um, and for whatever reason, we get a hiccup in sales and uh, maybe it slows down and maybe we don't have work for six more months. Well, you know, in their community, they might lose face among their among their peers. Uh, ties would rather not work than lose face in their community. So we have to be very delicate about how we onboard, train, and bring people on and, and get them committed. We want them to want to be with us. Um, a lot of the work in the textile industry around um, where uh, where we hire seamstresses, they do a lot of piecemeal work, make like 18 bot per pair of pants sewn. So, I mean, they really, really get taken advantage of. Um, so giving them this opportunity, it's, uh, it can be transformative for sure. So we want to go about it the right way. There are these, these uh, cultural nuances we have to be um, aware of. So getting lead time with pre-orders is perfect for that. So, so if we're successful, um, which I think we will, we'll, we'll have um, that time period to fulfill afterwards. We'll manufacture and get that all going while having the website up and taking more pre-orders, giving us at least, I'd say, five to six months of lead time. That would really help us forecast how to onboard um, more workers. Yeah, that's smart. I actually, I never really thought about that way. For most people 
who are doing Kickstarter projects, they're they're almost all imported from China, where they have these mega factories that they could just you know scale on demand. Uh, so it's actually cool that you're making something in Thailand. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it feels more. Uh, I don't know. It has that personal touch. Like even on our tags, you can see each of the seamsters signs their own name on it. Um, even the pictures on the tags that are those are the two women that literally made that hammock. So I think it gives it that extra touch. I think a lot of consumers, um, especially millennials, the kind of target market I'm focusing on, are becoming a little more conscientious about maybe where their products come from. Um, and I think kind of showcasing that, yeah, we're we're conscious about how we operate, we pay high wages, we, we want to kind of build this sustainable operation and basically do do right by people and do good in these communities um, that do great work for us. So we, it's uh, it's symbiotic. I like it. So we're in uh, Thailand. Are these being made right now? Uh, in in Bray. It's about four hours south of Chiang Mai, just uh, a little south of Lampang. So and what's that town like? Whew, um, there's not a there's not a lot going on there. Um, they're famous for teak wood uh, furniture, um, but there's. Uh, one in particular community where there's just a concentration of seamstresses and they all kind of do piecemeal work for um, local companies making just local clothes they'll sell at the market. So, I mean, they they don't pay anything and they really get taken advantage of. The alternative work is slash and burn farming. Um, and we all know that's devastating and dangerous. Um, the women that we work with right now currently, especially these two women, Sumali and Sukanya, they have two dependent family members. So they, they can never leave the house at the same time they have to always be at home they have their mother and their brother and they they need to they can only work from home so this provides them an opportunity and like there's no set working hours we basically say hey we need this amount of hammocks in a month you know you work just get them to us when you can and they're always i mean they have that sense of urgencies too so i mean in terms of production we meet we meet my demand while also finding that kind of work-life balance which is important yeah i think that's really cool that you know, you get, you actually got to see a photo of the the person who made the hammock. And actually, the very first thing I noticed when you when you handed it to me was that it, she wrote her name, and it wasn't like just printed. It was actually written by Anne, which yeah. is cool. Actually, I think it'd be even cooler if she wrote it in English, but with like one of the Thai characters. Uh, that's that's a good point. I was kind of debating that because. I, I wanted it in Thai well, and I was like okay well most of my customer base is not going to be able to read that or maybe not even recognize what language it's it's in but I like that I think having both would, would add even more so to that personal touch yeah and, and they don't have to write the entire name in Thai because you probably run out of room but just like at least you know just one, one or two of the characters a character cool. like the first initial that's a good idea yeah. I like that yeah be fine. yeah I mean so was, I mean that was actually I mean to be honest the biggest reason why I wanted to have you on the show is the fact that you're doing something in Thailand and kind of supporting the cause here as well and like and the local economy uh, and not just making like a, a digital nomad product which is normally completely cloud-based if that makes sense yeah. and by cloud-based I even mean I almost consider China as a cloud <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. because it has really nothing to do with you know with with anyone um, you know a lot of the people who you know, import from China. They they've never been there. Um, you know, they don't really they don't really care about the the workers. They they they're just like this is the product I want. Send it here. Ship it to Amazon. Uh, and that's it. Yeah, and I I certainly support the idea of like uh, building a business to support a lifestyle. I think that's what a lot of people are out here trying to do, and and I'm all for it. I've been I've been in the opposing world, and and I certainly get the 
that's a little more soul sucking over there, over there. Um, even though like my job wasn't too bad back there, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I wanted to build also like, I mean, it was just, I wanted to be inspired with what I did. I knew that I wasn't going to do good work if I wasn't all in fully inspired and learning about social business being in Chiang Mai. There's a lot of NGOs, a lot of social businesses. Um, I have a couple friends who um, worked on one here locally and they, I got real close with them. So learned a lot about how like for-profit business actually can help people. And it was just like a, a whole new concept to me. And so I, I knew that I wanted to pursue something along those lines. And it just so happened like I loved hammocks anyway. I kind of just met the right person at the right time who was kind of looking for me at the right time. It was, I, I would call it lucky, honestly. Um, but I recognized the opportunity and it just, it felt right. Like I, I, I really gave it a lot of time being in Chiang Mai before I knew what my next steps were going to be. Um, and this just felt right from the get go. And so it's just been pedal to the metal to try to get it going. I really like the, the social cause, but with having an actual product that people want to buy before you focus on the, the, the social part of it, a lot of people think that just because Tom's shoes is successful, uh, they assume that it's because they give away a pair of shoes for every pair sold. But I guarantee that if nobody wanted to buy the shoes in the first place, like if the style wasn't good or it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't a pair of shoes people wanted, then nobody would care about the free shoes that they give away. Right. It's, it's almost one of the things where they want the shoes anyways. And the fact that there is a, a social portion of it, it makes them feel better about buying the shoes and they, it makes them want to talk about it as well. Yeah, I think, I think there are definitely two schools of thought and, and I definitely kind of struggled with this as well and even with Kickstarter, I was always advised like go, go product first, like showcase what you have and that it's different and then icing on the cake. Yeah, it actually helps people in the process as well. Um, so I'm trying to find a balance with that and it, and it is quite difficult because I do want people to realize like we do have something different with a hammock. It, there is nothing like this uh, commercially sold on the market. Um, so I, I really want to showcase that, but also the fact that, yeah, it does good for people. They are handmade. Most are just made in a factory. So, I mean, there are these elements that do really make it special. Um, so it's, it's, it's a challenge. But so, but what about like price and scalability wise? I mean, wouldn't it, I would assume it'd be a lot cheaper and easier to scale if you made it in China. Likely it would be. Yeah. Um, Again, I think it's one of those things where I, I feel like I, I got lucky with timing as well because I think um, I can, certainly with the value proposition, I think I can uh, price it a little bit more than my competitors because of it does have this unique functionality and that they are handmade, so on it, and the good that it does. Um, so in terms of like how I'm going to price it on Kickstarter and um, on our website when we get that up, I it's it's certainly sustainable and it, the margins the margins are good enough to to keep it going and keep me uh what, what are these going to sell for so we're still playing with the numbers right now but likely the double they will come with webbing straps which i'm sorry i don't have those available right now but those will be included and it'll be around like maybe a hundred dollars give or take uh and the ultra will be around maybe the 60 70 range we're still kind of toying with that i have a couple retailers actually i've lined up uh in the state so we're going to kind of do some price testing as well um but in thailand it's certainly a lot cheaper um, because obviously you don't have to ship it over there um fulfill it and everything it's it's a lot easier to sell it so in cmrca we'll probably sell it for around right now they're going for 1200 baht but we're 
we're upgrading, like I said, with the strap. So it's going to go up to a, maybe around like 17, 1800, about to keep it competitive with Ticket to the Moon, who's also, uh, they have a branch uh, in Thailand. So I need to keep it competitive uh, with them as well because it's not an inferior product and I don't want to price it that way. Okay. Uh, so what is the difference between your, your product and Ticket to the Moon? Well, the fact that they are handmade, um, they, they don't come from, they don't come from factories. Um, we source all materials here locally. Um, and the pouch functionality, the fact that it is fully adjustable. I mean, Ticket to the Moon has great products. I, I really respect them as a company. They do a lot of good for their uh, local community as well. Um, but we have something different in terms of how to use a hammock differently. Um, and I think that encourages people to use it um, more often, frankly. Um, so I... I think we, we've got those two angles uh, covered that differentiates us. Yeah, so we were talking a little bit earlier about why people like hammocks so much. And I was saying that I think it's the, it's like the, the icon of relaxation. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard not to de-stress or relax when you're in a hammock. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, well, science really coming out about it. Now, there, uh, there was a, a Swedish study um, recently, oh, I'd say like maybe a year ago, that actually did like a sleep study, um, people sleeping in hammocks, and it actually showed that it induces sleep faster, sleep, sleeping longer, and getting better quality sleep in a hammock. And, and these um, parachute variety of hammocks actually provide like complete lumbar support. So from you, you don't have any pressure points, um, it's just, a, it's better for your back and your shoulders. I personally have a shoulder problem, so it, it just gives me nice support. Although I will say I do have trouble sleeping in one throughout the night cause I'm a stomach sleeper. And if you're a stomach sleeper, it's a little challenging in a hammock. Um, I'm more of a daytime napper, I guess, in them. Um, but yeah, they're really, I think there's a lot of science coming out to prove that like these are actually really good for your health. And, and there's a lot of, um, articles about people foregoing their beds and actually sleeping in hammocks in their homes. Well, that's crazy. I actually met a this uh, Irish sailor guy that would sleep in. A, I went to his his bungalow once in uh, in Kotao, and I was really surprised. He, he didn't have a bed. He just had a hammock, like uh, sprawled across his his bungalow, and he said that he just got used to sleeping in them when he was in the navy. Yeah, yep. But I can't imagine that by having like a rounded back that that would be good. That would be good for you. Well, how you want to lay in it. At least in our style of hammocks, there's a lot of different varieties out there. But in our hammocks, especially the double, you want to lay diagonally. You want to hang it at a 30-degree angle on either side, but you want to lay in it diagonally, creating a larger surface area. So you actually aren't kind of banana-shaped. Um, and by doing that, yeah, you basically create a little bed. So you have to hang it right. And that's another thing that I've been struggling with in terms of how, how to convey the, the proper way to use it and lay in it. Like I, like I said before, like if it's comfortable, there's really no right or wrong way. But if you want to sleep in it and get kind of those additional benefits, diagonal sleep, diagonal lay and 30 degree, 30 degree hang. Okay. That makes sense. Actually, I mean, like one really easy thing you could do is like, on like the back of your, your tag or something, you can just mm -hmm. have like a, a link to a YouTube video kind of showing how, yeah. to, how, how to lay in it. Correctly. That's a I good think, idea. I think that'd be cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good idea. Yeah. And uh, I just looked up what a webbing strap is because I actually didn't know what it was. <laughs> uh, and it seems like it's it's something that you can you can use for to go around a tree or something. Yeah, it's actually more tree friendly. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of times rope, I mean, trees aren't the only thing you, it's any anchor point is is good to hang with, with rope essentially, but like uh, rope can strip bark on trees, which is not good. 
Um, so the webbing strap just creates a larger surface area. It can be like one inch or two inches, and it doesn't pull down on the tree. It's not as it's not as rough on the tree. Yeah, and it's, it wouldn't slip as much either. It wouldn't slip as much, no. Glad you guys are doing uh, the webbing straps instead of the the traditional rope. Yeah, yeah. I, well, a lot of companies, and the reason we even went with the rope because it takes time to develop these straps to make to weight test them and make sure that, like I was telling you before, like the the thread even is, we have to be really specific about what we use to make sure that it's it will in fact hold. It will be weight bearing. But I thought it would be disingenuous to sell a hammock without a means to hang it. Uh, I read a lot of when I was doing product research, I just, I lived in Amazon reviews and I just went through and, and read all the negative reviews possible. And everyone was outraged that they would buy an Eno hammock and it didn't come with straps. And it's not always that clear. Well, not everybody reads all the product descriptions uh, anyway. So maybe they, maybe it was there. Maybe it wasn't, but they, they're pretty upset that they, they get it out of the box and they can't hang it. I, as a customer, I would have, I would be pissed if I couldn't hang if I didn't come with straps. I'd be okay if it came with like cheaper straps first. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe like the, the rope, if it's cheaper to manufacture, and then I can buy like more expensive yeah. straps. But I think nowadays people really like um, people. You know, like when you buy stuff online, there's so much information that we don't really read all the bullet points. We don't yeah. read the fine print. We kind of expect it to be like a high quality item that comes with everything you need. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I think transparency is key. I, I think I I learned a lot actually working at at Redfin in terms of being completely transparent and open with customers and just. Uh, uh, making sure that all of that is very clear. And I, I think certainly in Amazon, you can get kind of lost in too much text and you don't want to read it all. But I, I think, um, you know, I think Amazon does do, or I mean, uh, you know, in some of these larger companies, I think on their site, they do a, a good job, I guess, letting you know that these don't have, because they, su- you know, suggest, suggest to sell the other items. So I, they make it very clear that it's not coming with it. So um, I do want to put these on Amazon eventually, and I, that'll certainly be something that I'll, I'll include in a, in a top bullet that, yeah, they actually do include straps. It'll justify the price, I think, a little bit more too. Yeah, I mean, so coming from like an e-commerce background, I understand why people want it separately because unfortunately people are price conscious, right? And not, you know, when someone, when someone clicks, let's say they search for um, travel hammock, they, they might see an ad, they might see a bunch of different um, items and they're automatically going to look at the cheapest ones first and work their way up until they find something that balances their uh, uh, their budget as well as quality. So I think most shoppers, including myself, I'll open like the three cheapest ones. I'll kind of quickly look at the the images, the description, as well as the reviews. And if they're really bad, I just close it. You know, even even though it's the cheapest one, I'll just I won't even look at it. But then I'll find the best value. And by best value, I mean the lowest price for the best reviews and the best um, you know implied quality, I guess, through the description, the photos. Yeah, yeah, I would. I talked with a, a guy who kind of gave me some price strategy and he said, you have to be really careful with it. You don't want to be the, you don't want to be the cheapest because there's just that kind of implied uh, inferiority, but you don't want to get lost in the middle because then it's, I think it's a little more difficult to kind of stand out and, and especially on a place like Amazon. And one, and it was one reason why I didn't start on Amazon is because there's a story behind this. Uh, project and it's really hard to convey that. So to get the price that I felt would justify what it is, it might have been tough starting out. So I, that's why I kind of went with the 
product launch and going that going that route hopefully we can build some brand recognition and and people would feel more comfortable on amazon buying it um but also you don't want to be the most expensive and frankly i don't think i could justify even being the most expensive there are some really really higher end uh, hammocks out there for sure there's companies like kamek and will charge 150 200 us for that and they use very very high-end uh, materials so i mean I think it's understanding your customers, your customer base, and and communicating your messaging to them. Um, and I think that's kind of the approach I'm taking. I've, I've spent so much time trying to understand uh, who who would resonate with this, who who buys this variety of hammock. Um, and I think I've got an idea of how to go about that. Um, but I think on places like Amazon, it will be tricky. Um, I think we could play around with some pricing. Like I said, mar- margins margins are pretty good to keep keep us playing around with it um to kind of find that sweet spot but uh it'll be a challenge like i certainly haven't got it all figured out that's for sure yeah uh, you know it's funny that you mentioned it's, it's difficult to know those add-ons for for stuff on amazon because i was looking at a pair of bose headphones on on amazon and it wasn't clear if it came with the case or not and if i was going to buy a pair of 200 plus headphones I would like it to come with a case, especially because the pair that I got from Bo, uh, from Bose.com or from Bose store, um, it it did it did come with with the case. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, is it cheaper on Amazon because it doesn't come with it, yeah. or is it just you know poorly poorly described? And I really really believe that in the next couple of years, people are actually going to st- shop less on Amazon. Uh, than they do now. I think for a while, uh, for a long time, um, Amazon had built up their reputation as being cheap, free shipping, great you know customer service. But I think, honestly, I think a lot of the marketers are kind of ruining it <laughs> because um, now majority of products on Amazon, you know, and not you know not the big brands, not like North Face or something, but like just you know, if you search for just general items, almost everything is private labeled from China now. And before, it was pretty easy to ignore them because they either wouldn't be on Amazon at all in the first place, or they would have really bad photos and really bad descriptions. So you can kind of just really quickly tell that's not something I want. Now, because it's so popular to, to market on Amazon, the people can, you know, starting to sell really crappy products, but with great images, great, you know, descriptions, and they hack all the reviews. And Amazon is starting to crack down on that, so they make they make it really more difficult to get reviews now. But they're not really going back and devaluing the the old ones. So those people that have been doing FBA for the last couple of years, they're always going to be up on, on top. And it's it made me as a consumer not want to shop on Amazon anymore because now I have no idea what I'm getting. Like it's I know I'm not getting the best quality items anymore. Yeah, and and I think you're probably a pretty savvy consumer coming from the background that that you do and a lot of kind of people well, let's use like my like my grandma she shops on Amazon she has no clue about any of this and so unbeknownst to her yeah she's got some real nice pictures with this uh, cutting board she wants to buy or whatever and she gets it and it's not what she thought it was and so I think I think maybe to the yeah I I'm not sure where that where that's going to go but I think Amazon will absolutely absolutely respond quickly because it is more of like a buyer's platform than it is a seller's um, so I think once they start to get a feeling that that's actually what's happening, they'll probably start cracking the hammer. Yeah, I, I think it's it's hard for them because they may also make so much money <laughs> from having all these sellers. Yeah, uh, I think what's what's they're going towards is actually becoming like an eBay, 
mm. where in the beginning, you know, they were like really selective on what they sell and it's everything, you know, they had uh, in house. Uh, now with their FBA program, you can st- send stuff where they ship it out in house. So it's it's great to be an FBA seller, yeah, you know. Right. Um, and I and I do encourage you to sell on Amazon once you have it up and running. Um, but I'm glad that you're also first off you're launching it on your own. And then you're going to be selling on your own site because I, I do think that that's going to be the future. Yeah, and I'm, I certainly like respect Amazon, and I definitely think it is uh, an ecosystem that is uh, healthy for a product like mine. It's quite competitive, from what I can tell. But a lot of the stuff is I can tell that it's the exact same stuff, just rebranded over and over and over again. Maybe Amazon has their own brand of this variety of hammock already, and they're just always going to undercut me in price. Um, my problem is it's hard for me to convey the story. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of times, and I think some of my customers, if you're already in the market kind of for a hammock or you own a hammock already, I think it's priced in a comfortable, uh, range to where maybe they don't have to think about it too much. Um, the, this story kind of the why element, I think helps me tremendously in that. And I, and I get a lot of that feedback here. Now here is certainly different than Amazon, but you know, fulfillment, their fulfillment options are uh, kind of top notch and like, there's no reason to not give it a try. So I certainly will. Um, I've heard a lot of horror stories of accounts getting shut down for X, Y, and Z. And uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. But yeah, I'll give it a shot. I like it. So when does your Kickstarter actually go live? Uh, We're thinking uh, mid to late June. Uh, Keeps getting pushed back. But um, I would say late June is what I'm really shooting for. Or I'm sorry, July. Late July is what I'm shooting for. Okay. So if they go on... So depending on, I guess, guess when you guys are listening to this, if it's before then, you can can just go to the website, Flying Outfitters.com. Yep. And you can see the video. You can sign up for the, the, the list for it. But I'm assuming a lot of you guys are listening, you know, weeks later. So it might be live right now. So so check that out. Um, yeah. So what what else are your plans uh, kind of going forth? Um, well, I'm completely consumed in prepping for this Kickstarter. Like it is, it's just uh, <laughs> quite an up, uphill battle, especially doing a lot of this kind of on my own. I, I am bringing on some people now to kind of help me along. Just it's, it's. I would say nearly impossible to do it right, impossible to do it by yourself. Um, like what, what are the steps? Like, like the, the Kickstarter marketing plan, like what, what is your strategy? Oh, uh, there's a lot that goes into it. Well, really, what I'm, I'm uh, challenged with now is just building that kind of receptive audience to launch too. Uh, you just, I think there's thousands of Kickstarters launching every day. Um, you'll just get lost in the bunch if you don't have uh, that kind of initial push. So they say within that first 48 hours is when you can kind of trigger their algorithm to kind of boost you up to editor's pick or one of their favorites, hit the homepage. If you don't, I don't know what that sweet spot is. Um, and that's why having a lot of like, um, valuable lower, lower tier op reward options. So like I, we'll have some pretty low, low tier options that I think are of value. We're going to, we're going to be making these little reusable tote bags, these reusable keychain totes. Um, so we'll have those at a real low tier. And I think adding some value at a low option, uh, will get more people to help. Um, I don't think it's per dollar amount. It's per number of, of donors. So I think, uh, yeah, having some value at a lower tier could help get people to sign on quicker and boost up that algorithm. So how does Kickstarter get paid? Do they, do they take a cut of the total dollars or how does that work? Yeah, they do. They take 5%, I believe. And then they, um, their credit card processing takes five, so it's about ten percent they take. 
it was actually really cool that you explained uh, why people have those those low value um, options. And, and by low value, I mean if you guys look at a Kickstarter page, there's the the one dollar pledge or the five dollar pledge. And I used to always wonder, like, why did they even have this? <laughs> you know, like, who cares about getting a shout out on on Facebook? And that's all. And that's a lot of what they offer because they understand this this algorithm process. They know if you can get a hundred people just donating a dollar, well, that's a hundred donors. That then triggers that algorithm. Uh, to boost you up and and get more exposure. But if you don't have much of value, I think I can get more by offering something, something tangible, something I actually have to ship to you or some kind of like ebook or whatever. Um, even if it's just a bumper sticker, I'm, I'm learning that like my target market actually would like a, like a, a logo sticker. We have a pretty cool logo, I think. Um, you know, new to me, I, I, I wouldn't find that very appealing. But hey, if people want it, we'll provide something something of value instead of just like a shout out or a, a virtual high five or something like that, which I just think is disingenuous. Yeah. And you know what? I, I, I could actually see people wanting like a hammock life bumper sticker or something. Yeah. 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 Maybe not so much a logo, maybe some kind of hammock messaging would be, would be better. I like that. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely see that. I like it. Something of value I think is just, uh, it's just a better, better proposition. I think it's just better. It's more genuine for customers. Um, who want to contribute to your campaign? I, you can contribute and get no reward. I don't know if many people actually do do that, um, but that is an option, I, I guess, if you wanted to do that. I think, so from Kickstarter's point of view, I think one of the reasons why they encourage the even the $1 donors is because you're creating an account on Kickstarter, you're filling in your credit card details, and there's a chance that you're going to click something like save, uh, save my info. Mm-hmm. And what they are getting is they're getting a valuable lead uh, to be able to market to. So they know that once you put in credit card number once, you're a million times more likely to buy other things on Kickstarter because yeah. it becomes easier. Mm-hmm. This is why Amazon has a Prime membership because they know once they have you in, you become, you know, it, it becomes too easy to, to just keep buying stuff. So from their point of view, from Kickstarter's point of view, you're bringing them like a, a $15 or $50 lead. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that acquisition cost that would normally would cost them through ads you're bringing it to them. So they want to reward you for that. Or maybe they have like a re- retargeting strategy involved as well. Oh, they definitely do because I get uh, retargeted the crap out of on Yeah, I was going to say, I do too. <laughs> I do too. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's in their best interest. Sure. Um, so I actually swore off Kickstarter, buying stuff on Kickstarter yeah. uh, pretty recently. <laughs> I bought this, um, the world's best travel jacket by Ballbox. Have you heard of them? I think I've heard of them. I don't know much about it. They had a great promo video where they showed like 21 features, um, this like built-in inflatable neck pillow. Uh, it was just so cool, right? Yeah. And it made me buy on the spot. It was like over $100. It was like $120. And then was shipping and customs ended up being like 160 bucks. And I'm about to just throw it away. Even I've never worn it. Really? Yeah, it's just it, the materials are so bad. Um, the design really? was terrible. It was. It came like six months late, so winter was completely over. Hmm. Uh, and it just, they just failed to deliver, even though they made they raised like eight million dollars plus or something. That that might have been maybe their problem. They weren't prepared for their success. <clears throat> and and I uh, I you know I hope we kind of run into that challenge, but um, it is something that we have to really be sensitive to in terms of um, scaling up production quickly. Uh, but this kind of goes back to my earlier point and that just being completely transparent about that, uh, especially knowing that your product is being handmade in the homes of these seamstresses that we work with, uh, just being open with customers is just is 
just the best thing you could possibly do. And it really kind of uh, helps to build that safeguard against just bombing your Kickstarter. There was a there was another hammock company. I won't name who they are, but a couple of years ago they ran into this exact same problem. They had a pretty cool idea. Their their whole value prop was that they they did artist printing on the material. So they worked with local artists and they they printed uh, some really cool stuff on hammocks. Um, but the guy, he had a lot of people in production, so he had to ship material to this place, and then once it went from there, he had to ship it to this other place, and then he had to ship it to the printing shop, and then back to him, and then there was this like four uh, four part cycle to it, and that just I think really uh, I, I think it just kind of fell apart, and so he kind of disappeared, <laughs> and uh, Kickstarter I I don't know what their recourse is in terms of because you are liable to fulfill the orders when people donate. I mean, it is a, a legal obligation. So um, I'm not sure exactly how it turned out. Um, but let's just say the reviews and the people uh, leaving comments and even on the Facebook, I mean, it was disastrous. So I let's needless to say he had to rebrand and, and start up in a, under a different name. But I don't even know if everyone got their hammocks, they put their money towards. So I mean, it's just like you you can succeed so well that you just fail. And uh, it's something, um, it's something to consider for sure. Yeah. So I just looked it up. They raised $9.1 million. Wow. On, on this, on this crappy jacket. That's insane. That was li- like, literally it's so bad that <laughs> I'm like, I'm, pr- I'm just going to throw it away. Uh, cause I, it's, it's too hot to wear anywhere. Cause the materials are not breathable. Um, yeah. it just, and I tried to sell it for, I think like fifty dollars. I said like I would try to sell it for, for more than half off. I said it's brand new, wow. never worn, t- uh, tags are on still. Uh, anybody want to buy it for? I think I said fifty bucks. I bought it and I bought it for one twenty, and no nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted yeah. it. And I think I was a little bit too honest about it because I, I I made a review of how bad the jacket was because <laughs> I didn't want <laughs> someone put, buying put it. Your best foot forward there. Yeah, and assume, you know, I was like I'd rather just lose one hundred twenty dollars than sell someone a crappy jacket that they that they um you know they weren't aware it was crappy you know yeah so to be honest uh if if it wasn't for the fact that we i actually tried the hammock uh before having you on the show i, I wouldn't even have you on uh i think the, so the only reason why i was like okay like we can we can do this interview is because sure. you're in chiang mai and then you wanted to bring a hammock over for me to try out and that's why I made I made us go try it out first because I don't want to talk about something just like in theory. Yeah, know? yeah, or yeah. something that you you wouldn't maybe support otherwise, assuming that you would. But like, yeah, I really um, I really stand by what we're working with here. I mean, we've put the time and effort in. I know a lot of kind of like the the lean startup attitude is just get something, get your kind of minimum viable product up, test it, get it going. But we really, really wanted to kind of come out with something really strong and i think we did i mean there was a lot of testing and back and forth going with it but well i mean if it could support me and i'm, I'm like 220 pounds that i'm sure it'd be fun <laughs> the ultralight you'd fit great in the ultralight yeah. it worked out well yeah so there you go <laughs> if you weigh less than me you're probably okay be all right yeah 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 <laughs> i like it uh actually so back to the, the marketing part of it uh, so i actually just launched my, my course on udemy uh it's called dropship lab and I when we're talking about the Kickstarter launch, it really reminded me of the Udemy launch because it's I I think it's very very similar to the algorithms because basically uh, it's so it's been up for two days only right and my old course I launched I didn't do any marketing didn't do any promotions and it just got lost you know till this day it's never really made that many sales it's just it's just kind of there but for this course what I did was I sent the first thing I sent was a something called a Udemy promotional uh, email 
which allows me to send within Udemy to other students that I've already signed up for previous courses. So I guess that would be, for Kickstarter, I guess that would be equivalent to um, if you had projects in the past and sending an email to them saying, hey, check out our new project, or getting a, another Kickstarter um, like founder to, to mail out to their audience. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, a good strategy that we're, we're going to try to approach here and that is to collaborate with other uh, existing uh, Kickstarters. So something with a complimentary product, like a, maybe a really cool sunglasses line or, or some kind of outdoor gear company just to do some kind of collaboration with them. Um, I don't know the ins and outs of how to like really approach that necessarily, but there, there could be some cross-pollination um, effort there. Yeah, definitely. So that brought me a ton of, of signups. And then I sent, and then I, what I did was I wrote a blog post and sent that out to my, my email list and my social media. So if you guys are following uh, me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, or if you're subscribed to the mailing list at either johnnyfd.com or travellikeabosspodcast.com, you would have gotten an email saying, um, introducing my new course, Dropship Lab. This is what it's all about. And the reason I send out my own promo emails and not just uh, rely on Udemy organically is because Udemy, like Kickstarter, they have these algorithms where they see who is successful, what is getting traction or not. And by me sending some traffic there first uh, through my own mailing list, um, through the, you know, even the Udemy built-in promos from my my other course students, uh, or just bringing in traffic from like social media or other places, Udemy sees, okay, this is a hot selling item that people are willing to buy. They're bringing us new outside customers, which are super valuable. So first off, let's reward this instructor because we want them to continue doing what they're doing. But also, let's also um, give them, you know, and let's let's incentivize them and reward them by giving them some customers. And the way they give you customers is they feature you organically on uh, the recommended products um, and also on the front page. Uh, and what's really cool is, so that was day one, right? So day one, I sent out that promo email. I got a bunch of um, buyers that have bought my previous course. Day two, I wrote the blog post and I started and I blasted it out. And day three, I looked at my my revenue income, um, and actually I'll I'll pull it up right now if you guys want to see it. Is and I'll I'll link I'll have a link to it in the show notes as well. I'll have a screenshot of it. But what they started doing is I started getting signups through what they call Udemy's ad program. So they are actually taking out Facebook ads and other ads, sending people to my uh, to my course because they see okay this is a hot course that that is brand new, and people are gonna. Are people are going to buy it, um, so, and this guy is promoting it. So, if we take out ads, there's a good chance that it's going to have good ROI. So, so far, um, this month, so the last couple of days, I've made about 600 bucks through this course. Uh, and the reason why it's actually not as high for the amount of students I've gotten is Udemy forces us now to cap our price at fifty dollars. So. That's the downside of selling Udemy. We can't sell it for for one ninety seven or two hundred dollars, even though the course is probably worth that much. I have to sell it at fifty dollars maximum. And because it goes through either an affiliate or through Udemy's ad program, they take a huge cut of it. So they actually take seventy five percent of it. It's only my own promotions where I basically get the whole thing. I get like ninety seven percent. Interesting. That's a huge chunk. <laughs> well, it helps to have a pretty good following like you do. So. It seems like if somebody were to go and 
get something going on you do me it certainly helped to already kind of have like a, an active blog or some kind of where you already have an audience and yeah and i think that's where where right now where you're asking me you know where are the, where are the marketing efforts and it's just yeah building building that audience um trying to get into uh you know, interviews like this with you um people who you know certainly like to travel people in the who would uh, find a hammock appealing uh little niche blogs believe it or not there are uh hammock blogs out there uh so getting product reviews and things like that. So trying to build that audience is tough. It's definitely tough. So but it's one of those up. things where like it's tough for everyone to start. Yeah, you know, like yeah. It, was, it was just as tough for me when I was just six times. And and that's and that's what I was kind of uh, alluding to before. And another good reason why, again, it was kind of like just a, a kind of a luck of the draw thing that I had a product that just so happens that I live in a place where there's a lot of travelers. It's appealing to people immediately, and I was able to get a lot of customer feedback. But not just the feedback element of it, but like I was branding myself. Um, so having these conversations at the market. Um, Every time I would go into CMRCA to like bring them new inventory or have a conversation, like I would sell a couple of hammocks while I was in there. They're, they just they can't they don't stay on the shelf too long. So like somebody's looking at a hammock, I just kind of mosey on over and have a talk with them. Half an hour later, like I've got like I've got a fan base and promoters of the brand. I think uh, in the future. So now I need to kind of reach back out and say, hey, like you you were kind of digging us before. Like we need your help now, kind of thing. So. I, it really helped to have a product that I could physically hand someone and sell and um, and to tell the story. Um, and again, that's why I said like it, that's where Amazon would pose a challenge where it's I don't I didn't kind of have that initial contact. Um, but having that here has been tremendous. And so, uh, yeah, it's been really good. Good being here. And we'll just continue to do that as well. Yeah. And, and another thing, like a lot of times, yeah, it was to sell some hammocks. We'd have good nights. We'd have bad nights. But I made excellent contacts i mean uh distributors in germany um france uh the japanese japanese people seem to really uh like the hammock so i started making these global contacts so even still when i launch i don't think um i'm only just going to kind of live in the thailand southeast asia united states markets i think I, I have opportunity to branch out um there was a girl in canada who wanted to work with me who basically came to the markets to find wholesale opportunities um and she just so happened to work with like socially conscious business models and so that that's something that could really uh, develop into a great relationship so yeah it, it had it was a multifaceted multi-beneficial um, opportunity to have that so it wasn't always just a couple hammock cells that wasn't really going to do a whole lot but it was just all the exposure the brand exposure the local exposure too there's so much in and out uh, traffic here in Chiang Mai um, but also people who are coming to look look for business opportunities as well and, and I think it's really smart that you're doing things in the beginning that don't scale so you're you know, you're the one that's going into the store I, I think it's really cool that you actually went to the night markets and <laughs> yeah. you know, sold them there because then you can see, you know, firsthand, you know, who's buying it, why they're buying it. You can talk to them. Um, you can, you know, you can do these things that are so vital that a lot of online business owners just pairs of these, uh, indigo, you know, those the indigo dye colored um, like fisherman pants. Yeah. And I asked her what she was doing with it, and she says, "Oh, I, I send it back to the UK and I sell it there." And it's I, and people, yeah, people are making a business doing that. It's yeah, they're. We were when we were at the market for they're actually turning it into uh, the Sunday Walking Street. They're turning it into a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site. That'll probably happen in the next year. 
Um, likely we won't we won't continue there. Actually, we have stopped. We're, we're not there any longer. Uh, just my attention needs to go elsewhere. But for that first six months, it was really beneficial. What qualifies something as a UNESCO World Heritage Site? I'm not sure what that process looks like, but <clears throat> being there, having a product that our products are made in Thailand, they are Thai products more or less, um, but it wasn't like visually a Thai style product. So um, it's like real estate at the market. These people pay for the space. Um, yeah, my, how much do you have to pay for that space? Well, my girlfriend, again, we just kind of got lucky. My girlfriend, um, uh, she's a, uh, a professor at, at CMU, and so one of her one of her colleagues' mother-in-law had a, had a space and did her a favor, wrote her a favor or something, and so we were able to share that space with um, one of her friends. So it was a really tight, small space, but um, yeah, we just got lucky and got to sit there. So I'm not sure actually what that cost is, but it's like real estate. I think they pay a, a premium to have that. Yeah. I'm very curious. Like, do you, do you have any idea how much a space costs? Well, it is Thailand. So it's, it's not that much. And a lot of these people who do work the markets, they are people who make a lot of their clothes themselves. So, I mean, they're, they're not running major businesses or brands. Um, I'd say it's a couple hundred baht for, for the evening. And I noticed they're always in the same spot. So yeah. How like how do they even mark that? So, it is interesting. I, I don't know the ins and outs of it. Again, like I, my girlfriend kind of helped uh, make that happen, but a lot of them have been there for years. So they that's just kind of oh I know that's Joe's spot or I know that's so and so's spot, and you just kind of like have that respect. Everyone knows everybody. They're friends. That they're there. Actually, a lot of them hit up the Saturday market. They hit up some of the other local markets. They they all know each other. Um, and so they, I mean, they do business together as well. So, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where like, they've just been there forever. They pay the money and, but it's, you have to have like a Chiang Mai address. So people from Bangkok can't come up. Even people outside of, um, I think the city, Chiang Mai, the, um, metro area, I don't, I don't think can get involved, but, um, yeah, I mean, they want it very, very Thai there. And my hammocks are definitely, I think I've sold maybe four or five hammocks to Thai people. They're just not really, really interested. And that's okay for whatever reason. Although in Bangkok, I think I could do quite well climbing. This is a great market for climbers and hikers and outdoor enthusiasts, cyclists, really popular in Thailand right now. So CMRCA, I'm going to work with them to kind of get into those um, smaller markets. They're looking for more lifestyle brand products. So we've got a, we got a nice thing going, I think. Um, but yeah, on the Sunday market, I think it's, it's, had, its, it's had its time. So I've actually worked at a flea market once and we were selling VHS tapes that we acquired. So <laughs> I had a friend who was a manager at a blockbuster and he was instructed to destroy like 2000 VHS tapes. But instead he called me and my other roommate and said, Hey, uh, do you want, do you want some, some movies? And we're like, sure. So we drove over there in my friend's Honda CRV and we filled up the entire back of it. And we actually actually had two trips. So we were like, okay, what are we going to do with these 2,000 VHS tapes? <laughs> so we decided to go to uh, a, you know, a flea market on the weekend. And we paid, I think, about 100 or $150 for the space. But it was very clearly marked. It had you know, boundaries. It said like you know, C7 or something. We set up a table. We put up a sign that says, that's, I think we said like $2 each or something. And we had no idea if people were going to buy them or not. Because this was like obviously when, you know, VHS tapes were kind of going out of style. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we were at like a very like Hispanic market. So 
again, I guess a lot of people wanted the movie, you know, <laughs> and we sold them all. And I bought a brand new desktop computer. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Sold them all. If you sold, yeah, we sold pretty <laughs> much all of them. That's I think the, the only title that did not sell was a black comedy called Brothers or something. <laughs> and we just like, every time someone would ask Didn't us. vibe with the Mexican market? Yeah, yeah. They just, they just didn't want to look at it. They just yeah. didn't want to watch it. And we made the mistake actually of selling to a wholesale or actually another another flea market vendor right in the beginning. And because we got there early, we set up and this guy walked around and he's like, hey, I'll buy a um, hundred copies or something. All right. But what he did was he bought 100 of the best titles that he knew was going to sell for more. And we, I regretted that because what happened was we had less selection. So actually, okay, so the pricing was $3 each or five for $10. So that would encourage people to buy multiples. And because we uh, no longer had selections of the really good movies people would have to kind of choose four not so you know like you know maybe three movies they really liked and then for the last two they're like oh i can't really find anything but you know so if we had if we had kept our selection actually would have we would have sold more um but i think it was the mentality where we had no idea if anyone was gonna buy it so like the first person who came up to us like yeah yeah we'll sell it to you <laughs> yeah but in retrospect we would have said you know come back at you know 4 p.m or 5 p.m and you know then you can buy wholesale because he was also competing against us. He started selling it as well. For more? For more, actually, yeah. Of course. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> you should have like grabbed the top 10 from the guy at Blockbuster and then just dubbed, uh, copied about like 50 of those, and then you just would have had nothing but the best. You would have cleaned house. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, that somehow seems even more illegal than what we're doing. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, but that was, that was more than 10 years ago, so hopefully the uh, flea statute markets. was gone. <laughs> yeah, flea markets is a safe area for, I think, that kind of business dealing. Yeah, nobody cared. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it obviously said Blockbuster on, on the cover. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, but I think that, that almost made it more legit. Where people were like, oh, it's, it's probably real then. If it's, yeah, if it's yeah. Blockbuster on it. It's probably been watched 100 times over, but, yeah, why not? <laughs> I like it. So you said that you were working with a couple like organizations, like who, who are they? What do they do? Uh, yeah, we, we just partnered up with a, uh, with a local organization and NGO called free Burma Rangers. Um, it's an organization that basically sends in, I don't want to say it's kind of like kind of military ops like, but they're not military. They go in and they provide into conflict areas in Burma to pro- provide relief work. Um, so, Obviously, these guys can't just set up camp and, uh, you know, have a campfire and do all this because it draws attention. They're in these, like, uh, tough areas to to try to provide relief. So they need to be on the go. They've been using hammocks. Uh, I connected with a guy. There was a half marathon at the Hoitong Tao Lake here locally. And the guy running it was a part of this organization. Well, that organization was holding the run, the race, sponsoring it. And so we got to talking, and I uh, I had a much superior quality hammock that they could use. So I, I basically went um, to, to make that deal happen, uh, retrofitted a, a particular kind of hammock that they would want for the kind of work that they did. So they didn't want the rope or the hooks or anything like that. We increased the, uh, the channels on each end of the hammock so they could use their own kind of rope. So we basically kind of retrofitted a, a product for them to use, and, and they're pretty excited about it. And it's much, um, much lighter weight than what they were using. They were using the kind of like similar polyester material um, that's real heavy it comes in like uh, it comes in like a really large package so I mean it's it's just not good for what they were doing so yeah um, it's it's our 
it's their kind of model, um, you know, doing good. Uh, the kind of do good model is um, what we're trying to link up with other organizations um, that are doing some interesting work um, that could we could partner up with to do stuff. So um, that's one um, that we've been working on here locally. Okay. Yeah, I like it. There, there's a whole kind of side of Chiang Mai, the social responsibility side, that a lot of, there's tons of volunteers here, there's tons of organizations, and there's some businesses here that, that do social responsibility. We're both friends with the people at Trade Monkey. Yep. Uh, do, you, do you know much about their backstory, what they do? Uh, Mark and Alana, um, they're the founders. Um, I'm, I was just on the phone with Mark the other week, actually. Um, I, I don't know the story more or less i i think um they were working i think they were working in bangkok and they just uh, i i don't know the story so i'm not going to attempt to tell it <laughs> but I, I know they came up here to chiang mai um and hired some people to go out and source products um in different villages uh, they deal in like jewelry and a variety of other products yes um, so i'm reading their their website right now yeah. they're about us it's gotrademonkey.com if you guys want to check them out but basically, they are a, I don't know if they're not, not-for-profit or they're, a non-profit. They're for-profit. They're for-profit? For okay, yeah. but they're like a social enterprise. Yeah, they're a social enterprise. Okay. Uh, which, what, what's the difference between that and, a, and a, like a not-for-profit? Well, when you kind of build a business model around doing some kind of good, um, where, you know, we were talking about the Tom's model before, okay. where kind of the buy one, give one, they're kind of like the, uh, the original kind of story, I guess, that really got popular, which, you know, is... Uh, some would argue is an interesting model where like a, where for us, like we've kind of built our business around this kind of social core messaging. And I think that's along the lines of what they were doing is that everything that they uh, were making came from um, sustainable projects they were involved with all over northern Thailand and I believe all over Southeast Asia. So like, for instance, they were making um, they had scarves that were made by nuns at a monastery up in northern Thailand. Um, scarves they were making for USC, as a matter of fact, um, so basically providing work similar to what what we're doing with Flying Squirrel, um, providing high wages, sustainable products, and these kind of sustainable situations. Yeah, I, I think that's cool. I actually knew some of the girls that worked there, and they would have to drive like three, four hours into the yeah. jungle to to visit some of these people and, and kind of you know meet with them and, and find products, you know, pick up products that they've made by hand. And I just thought, man, this is so much work for <laughs> yeah. and it's so like unscalable unsustainable and i'm glad there are people like them are around because you know it's it's a great cause right but i think this is the difference between them and and what you're doing is they don't really have a a clear product that is different from from other people uh if you go to their their site go trademonkey.com you just look at the shop they have really cool stuff you know they have yeah, really nice lots stuff. of like um you know handmade jewelry uh you know artist made um like, you know, different kind of paintings and cards. You know, I would say ma mainly kind of jewelry things, right? Yeah, jewelry, yeah. Uh, s some clothing, some shirts and things like that. But it's like one of those things where, like, scarves. But it's, they don't have a, there's no reason besides that it is socially sustainable for people to, to go and buy it. So people are buying stuff from them because they believe in the cause. And that is kind of like the number one selling point. And, you know, I guess you could also argue that maybe they have some stuff, like some kind of cool designs that, you know, you can't really find in other places. But almost, like, but really the, the whole point of their business model, their whole business model is we are social, sustainable, you know, we're social first. While with your hammocks, regardless if, you know, of them knowing the backstory, 
do you have a product that is different that, you know, uh, just like with Tom's, you know, besides knowing the backstory, you have a product first and, you know, people are like, I'm going to buy this. They're like, oh, that's awesome uh, that you have this great story behind it. You know what? Maybe I'll buy two or I'll, you know, now I don't feel as bad coming back and buying more or telling my friends about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of the difference with a lot of, I think, uh, social businesses are kind of the direction they're going is this whole buy one, give one model might be kind of a thing of the past. I, maybe, maybe not. I, I'm not sure. I'm not an, necessarily an expert on the field. I know my business and I know the, I know the hammocks. So I, I wanted to... I wanted to build the business around those kind of core, those core fundamental values. So like, you know, we're not, we're not sourcing anything from China. We're not working in factories, like literally like without our kind of do good mission, like we would not have hammocks cause I'm not sewing hammocks together. Like I'm certainly not capable of doing that. Um, so yeah, I, I think, um, I think Mark, the owner of uh, trade monkey actually would even argue that, um, he felt that a lot of his customer base maybe weren't responding as much to the social angle. Um, and so they had to, I think, kind of reposition and their kind of um, their marketing and branding and that like that, that that is a part of who they are for sure. Um, but they do have really unique products. And I know he's in San Francisco right now. Uh, and I know he's been at a couple fairs and he's finding where his products um, fit a good niche. So now he's he's he was telling me about some business dealings with um, some large yoga companies, brands, um, retailers he's getting, he's getting fit in with. So he was telling me, he was like, you'll really identify more of your niche when you get over to the States or you get into where you can get your feet on the ground. And which I think I've been doing that here as well. But I, I think that's where he's noticed that like some, maybe the social story is just kind of the icing on the cake where you still need something different unique something special and the story comes with it too yeah and not to discourage people from you know from doing well for society and having social businesses because i do think it's important to to give back but profit first you have you have to have a you know it, it it does nobody good if you have the best intentions in the world but you have a product that sucks or nobody wants to buy or isn't profitable because then you have no nothing to give back you know you're going to be shut down you know in a few months after you know, after you run out of, of money and also like your the volunteers who in the beginning didn't mind working their butts off for, you know, no pay because it was a good cause that they eventually have to go home because you can't even afford to, you know, to give them a, a free place to live or, you know, uh, like little night, you know, like little things, you know? Yeah. And I, and again, like I'm not an expert on, on nonprofits or NGO organizations, but I know like a lot of nonprofits, basically spend a lot of their time just fundraising so a lot of efforts are spending just trying to get bring that money in whereas for profit we're also trying to generate revenue of course but uh yeah everyone everyone's benefiting from that directly um and so yeah if the money's coming in more hammocks can be made it's just it's scalable at that point so it's just it's good all around yeah and i guess you know a lot of it we can learn is to have a balance right yeah you know it's even though for profit and focusing on on profit is the only way to have a sustainable business. The only way, I guess, to, to have it not only sustainable for yourself, but also kind of for the whole world would be then to be like, okay, now I'm making money. Now maybe I should give back. All right. So like, for example, all of my businesses are for profit, right? Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, building these e-commerce stores just to, you know, just to be able to 
uh, you know, say I have a socially responsible business. I mean, you know, honestly, I don't, it's not even something I think about when I have no money because I'm like, I have no money, I have no income. You know, like what good am I going to do? It's to harder help to do that good if yeah. you can't support yourself. So you know, I was so first focused on building the business, building something that people want to buy, and then I'm like, okay, now I have all uh, this extra money and I have free time. What can I do? So like every month, I look for a different cause that I want to support. So like during burning season, I was supporting Warm Hearts, which they they do this biochar project where they they teach farmers and instead of doing slash and burning. Uh, of the fields, which is terrible for the environment, terrible for their health. You know, it's it's bad in, in every way. It's not sustainable. Uh, they teach them how to um, basically control the burn in these these homemade like devices, where the the crops can turn into bio charcoal that they can then either use uh, as as fertilizer or they can sell. And this is you know they figured out that with this technology. Um, it's it's completely sustainable and it's going to take a few years to really like you know get into effect and it you know there is a startup cost and like you know some training involved so that's that's why I donate to them so they can have the money to do that yeah I, i've really <clears throat> i've really wanted to kind of incorporate the kind of twofold element there of of doing good giving back kind of our our whole thing is like providing sustainable high wages for local seamstresses in areas that uh, really get exploited or alternative work is like these slash and burn situations to keep them out of uh, those destructive environments. So to build a business around that that core value of providing the wages, uh, and in turn they're making the product for us. It's just you you've literally built the business around what you're what you're trying to do that that local benefit. So to build it that way, it's it it just made a lot of sense to me trade monkey was an early inspiration for me when i was speaking before about um, local companies that were kind of inspiring me to um to consider business models this way uh, mark was a huge influence um and in teaching me about how to kind of approach something like that and so that's that's kind of why i was a a little patient about what my next steps were because I wanted to kind of have that similar inspiration to where, uh, yeah, have a product that's different, unique and cool and something that even, I, I mean, I love hammocks. So you got to love, I think a lot of times what you're involved with. Um, but also having that kind of, uh, element, like, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be able to give back, contribute and do what you can. Like the projects you're involved with, like the one in Africa with the mosquito nets. That's awesome. I want to get more information on that. Um, Yes. Yeah, so, so what that was is last month I bought I, I thought I bought a hundred, but it turns out I've only bought seventy three. Uh, but mosquito nets to uh, I forgot the project name now. It's I think it's I'll, I'll have a link to it in the, in the show notes, or you can just look at my income report for for May. Uh, I think on the very bottom now I started kind of listing to whatever charities I'm donating to that month. But what it is is so I actually the, the way I got inspired for that was I was just listening to an, an episode of Freakonomics, which is also a great podcast if you guys are looking for something else to you know hold up your time uh, while travel like boss isn't up but they had a episode called fix the world bang for the buck edition where they analyzed all the world's charities and they were like what is the biggest impact on you know for your dollar how much does it cost to save one life and for things like uh hiv or cancer you know which are huge issues it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to save one person uh through charities and through mosquito nets or through uh, saving people from malaria, 
which is um, a disease you get from from mosquitoes, which you get because you're sleeping out in the open and you don't have a mosquito net. It's really cheap to save people. Like it's it's you know for your bang for your buck, you know, like by me donating seventy three nets, there's a chance that seventy three people are not going to have a disease because it's it's your your chances of getting either dengue fever, malaria, or another kind of uh, you know mosquito borne illness. Uh, if you're sleeping outside with, with no protection, you know every single day for for five ten years is pretty much almost a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, a, pr- a pretty inexpensive way to create a preventative measure instead of a reactive measure. Where like HIV treatment, my girlfriend actually does um, a lot of pretty high level HIV research, um, and she deals with a lot of these treatments. Uh, and, and in Thailand, I believe, like if if you're HIV positive, I think you get treatment for free. But certainly that's not the case like somewhere like in the United States where I'm sure there's a lot of NGOs and organizations working with kind of after the effect. But like the pre- preventative measures actually are probably maybe even more important. Yeah. And, you know, as, as nice as it would be for there to be a cure for something like malaria, I'd rather, you know, prevent 10,000 people from, from getting it in the first place than you know, unfortunately, that one person who already has it. And, and you know, that's kind of the sad it's fact of reality. Yeah, but, you know, just thinking like from a logical point of view, it per mosquito nail is only three bucks. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not a 100% guarantee, but it's pretty close. It's like wearing a condom, right? When you sleep, <laughs> yeah. you know, and yeah. that person's probably not going to get malaria now because they have a $3 mosquito nail. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. It's a cool organization. I, I pulled it up the other day. I forget the name too, but it, it's something maybe I could get involved with. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So I'm glad that you are doing well and that you're providing jobs. And I really hope that you know people support uh, your cause and, and, and your business. Uh, if, if they want to check out your site and and check out your Kickstarter. Where do they go? Yeah, that's uh, so it's uh, flyingsquirreloutfitters.com. We've got a landing page up there. Basically, uh, it's our Kickstarter. Um, our Kickstarter page, uh, we're just collecting emails right now. So um, for our first 100 backers, we're going to give uh, hammocks at uh, extremely low prices. And uh, so late summer delivery as well. So if you sign up, you'll get a chance to uh, get some, some better offers. Um, so to our first hundred backers. So yeah, check us out. We've got some cool videos on there as well. Um, some videos highlighting about how our, our functionality, our hammocks are actually used different. We got a little teaser video on there too. Hope you like that, but yeah, give us a visit and check us out. Very cool. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for being on the show and for everyone listening. Uh, if you want to see behind the scenes photos of us, you know, with the hammock, uh, by my pool here in Chiang Mai, uh, go to episode 118's show notes, and there I'll also have um, links to, to everything that we talked about. And that's it. So I'll yeah. see you all next week. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.